0: Good morning. Everybody doing all right? Let me get my stuff here real quick. We will continue in the book of Hebrews. We'll actually be in uh, mostly in chapter 11, last part of chapter 10 this week. Um, So if you want to take your Bibles and turn there or in your phones or whatever the case may be. We've been looking in the book of Hebrews. We've been dealing with... uh, the author of Hebrews has been dealing with the people who had accepted Christ and came to Christ and were starting to go back to, to Judaism. They were going back and walking away from the faith. And he, was, and he was confronting them. He was dealing with them about these things and calling them not to return. I think it's a message for today. I think in the church many have grown disillusioned about their faith. They've grown doubtful about what they believe they read things and they think it doesn't make sense and and they walk away from from faith and the author of hebrews was writing to a people just like that and he begins and he starts out in the book of hebrews and we've looked at that this over the last two or three weeks where where he's telling them that that jesus is better in the past that God spoke in many different ways to his people to make things known about his person and his ways. And then he's spoken through through prophets, but now has spoken through his son, Jesus, because he was a better communicator. He was a better truth. He was superior to that of the prophets, to that of the angels. Remember, I always love that story of Gabriel coming to Mary and revealing truth to her. And now the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is better than the angels. He's, he's better than Moses. Remember Moses who went up on the mountain and he got the tablets that God wrote the commandments on and, and he walks down from that mountain and he has a glow about him because he had been around God. And they put a veil over him because the glow was so great. And yet the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is better than Moses. Why? Because Moses was a servant of the house but Jesus is a son over the house, and it's a huge inference to the person of who Christ is, and that the object of our faith is not something out there that is abstract, but the, author, the object of our faith is in the person of who Jesus Christ is. It's God himself. He goes on, and in that discussion, he continues to show Christ superior even to the sacrifices and if you remember last week we talked how how did God communicate to people he did it through the prophets and angels and and Moses and these other ways but now has through his son and he also communicated when people wanted to communicate God to God they had to come with sacrifice they had to go through the priest and the high priest remember the high priest would enter into the holy of holies once a year the holy of holies was where God was And so the people did not enter into there, but the high priest did, and he did it only once, and he represented the people, and he never went without blood. Not his own blood, but the blood of bulls and goats. And remember, the reason God required is that sin and rebellion requires death. The consequence is death, and it needs to, to, to cover the sins, to cover the iniquity, needed blood. And remember, we looked at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says that the life of the flesh is the blood, and therefore he required it for, the, for our souls. So there's this idea of this demonstration in the Old Testament and the whole things that they would go through and just really just to remind them of the horrorness and the destruction of sin and what it had done in the relationship between people and God. But the author of Hebrews described Jesus being the greater high priest. He was in the order of Melchizedek, who was a king priest. He wasn't like one of the priests who went and stood daily and went weekly and yearly, but he went into the very presence of God. He went into the heavenly, because these things were shadows of that which was true in the heavens. And then he talked about the sacrifice, and the sacrifice that Christ offered was a better sacrifice because he he sacrificed himself. When he entered into the presence of God, when he entered into the holy places in heaven, he did not enter with the blood of somebody else. He entered with his own blood. And it tells us when we looked at it, he once and for all settled that issue, that, that separation between God and his people, the iniquity of our sins that separated us. And now there is one mediator between God and us. There is one mediator, and that is Jesus he alone. There's no other path. There's no other, there's no other way. There's no other method in which to use to somehow to, to, to be able to reconcile ourselves with a holy God, but through his son Jesus. And, and the author of Hebrews, he spends his 10 plus chapters describing why Jesus is more than sufficient. And he's Accomplished this once and for all, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, as the priests in the Old Testament would stand daily and continually. Jesus did once, and he settled it. And he sat down at the right hand of God, and once and for all settled that issue. And then the author, we looked at it last week in chapter ten and verse nineteen, as he begins to conclude everything that he said up to that point, and he says, "We have confidence." I love that term. We have confidence what? To enter into the presence of God, enter into the holy place through a new and living way through Christ, through his blood, through his sacrifice. And that we have a high priest who is able. We have a high priest that is qualified. We have a high priest who can represent us, and that is Jesus Christ. And we learn that we enter through that way by faith. We enter by faith. We don't come with offerings. We don't come with our, our accomplishments. We don't come with our deeds. We don't come with our resources and our finances and somehow find a way into the presence of God. God has made it available, and when Christ said it's finished and the veil was the way into the presence of God, had now been made available to all who would believe, to all who would have faith. And the author of Hebrews continued on in chapter 10 and Verses 19 and 20, 21 and following, he says, we're to draw near with the full assurance of faith. We're to hold fast our confession of hope, not bending or yielding or wavering. And we're to continue, we're to continue to gather together. We're not to neglect that because we're to stimulate one another. We're to to take a spiritual concern into the well-being, the spiritual well-being of others around us. That we're going to encourage one another and beg one another to, in such a way that we would continue in the faith. We would not abandon our belief. We would not return back to the old ways. For there, there's no hope. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 gave a stern warning that if we return back, what is there? If we, if we reject Christ, we're trampling underfoot the work of Christ. If we reject Christ, we're making his blood commonplace, his sacrifice is nothing. Is there not any consequence for that? For there is no other path, there is no other name under heaven by which we should be saved than the name of Jesus than the person of Christ. It's faith. And he comes to this place in chapter 10 of verse 38 where we're gonna pick up today. And he says in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Think about that for a second. My righteous one shall live by faith. And then he says, if, we, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, the author of Hebrews says, but we, I love when he does this. He does this several times. And you, if you just read quickly, you'll miss it. Where the author of Hebrews is talking about us. And we, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. And we want to talk about faith today. I do not believe faith is manufactured somehow, this kind of thing inside of us, and some have it and some don't. I don't believe that. Absolutely not. That's a lie. If you think that, it's a lie from our adversary. If you buy into it, I'm sorry, it will lead you to destruction. See, I, I believe faith is an object faith is in the object of a person of God, in what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. So when he says, my righteous one shall live by faith, this phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is used four times in Scripture. It's only used four times in Scripture. Twice it's used by the Apostle Paul, once in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the other chapter 3 of Galatians in verse 11. And when Paul uses it, Paul's kind of writing in such a way as to being concerned about the righteousness or the holiness of someone standing before God. How 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 is an individual able to be acceptable before God? And he's talking about our justification. He's talking about our idea of whereby we stand in the presence of God and he declares us righteous. And the only way that's possible is by faith. I've often said, I stand here today before you. And I have nothing in any way that I can commend myself, any, any way to God, to, to his liking, to his, to his, to his holiness. I, I, there's nothing I can do to make myself look any better today than what Jesus has already done for me. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin that we might be made in the righteousness of God. So I stand here in his righteousness and Paul is talking about that, like in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, he's talking about the law. They were putting their faith in the law. They thought through the actions of their, of their commitment to the law and the duties of the law and the keeping of the law, therefore righteousness came through that. But Paul is saying, no, the righteousness is by faith and faith alone. See, if you f- believe this idea that it's the number of times you attend a church, how much money you give, or how much you're committed, how much you do, how much you're, you're going to fall short. It's, it's, working on the, it's working on the basis of law. But Paul is saying, no, the just shall live by faith. You see, the only way you approach God, the only way that you find yourself any way acceptable in the presence of God is through Christ. And it's only by faith. You have nothing else by which you can bring and somehow get God to become happy with you. We're pleased with you, but it's simply by faith. The other time when really this is where this is quoted from, the first time it's used is in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. And there in the context, the Jewish people were under, under slavery by the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans were a ruthless people in a sense they were extremely educated. In fact, even in, when we look back in history, we see their studies and the sciences and astrology and medicine. They, they, they were astounding in their day. Their accomplishments and their dominion over the earth and their power was unbelievable. There was, they were second to none. They were a very confident people in what they had accomplished. And God's people are wondering when is God going to deliver them from these proud people. And God's speaking here as the prophet through the prophet, and God says, behold, his, that's referring to the Chaldeans, the ones that were holding them captive, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith, by his faith. And here's what's so interesting about this is what God is doing is he's he's really giving a contrast in the contrast of who the Chaldeans were and who were the people that God would consider righteous. And how did they conduct themselves? How did they live in faith? In one half, he's contrasting these Chaldeans who were very, very self-confident, very prideful in who they were. They they, they relied on themselves and themselves alone. And God called them, you can see it, he calls them puffed up. And And then look what he says, and is not upright within him. In fact, he's identifying them as unrighteous because of the of their, of their promotion of themselves, of their confidence. But God says the one he takes pleasure in, the one that he recognizes, the righteous one will survive, will live, will conduct himself by what? By faith. And he says the righteous shall live by his faith. And so when the author of Hebrews says, brings this out, and he's contrasting this, and he's recognizing that the pride pride of the Chaldeans were to trust themselves, and he's saying, but we are those who trust, we are those who put our faith in God. It's a big contrast that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we are trusting God, we are placing our faith in God, and we're waiting on him to do what he said he would do. The object of their faith, and many times when people talk about faith, especially the faith of Christianity, they kind of think we put this astronomical, like, oh, yeah, there's this heaven out there, there's this glory, there's all of this. You know, I only know what is in the future by the one who said it. And my faith isn't in that. My faith is in the one who said it, that he will do what he said he would do. I am not in any way trying to this morning in any way conduct the idea that faith is just some mystical thing that rises up within us. A faith is a decision, it's an idea in which I decide and I'm going to trust God and I'm going to believe in him. And to be honest with you, dear people of God, I think it's something that the church needs today. We're seeing people walking away from faith left and right. We live in a culture that, is, that has all been about ourselves It's about taking ourselves up. When I was a kid, it was like you take yourself up by the bootstraps, you know. It was the picture of the Marlboro man riding his horse down over the side, and this was a proud, strong man. And it's this idea that we deserve these things, and we begin to take confidence in ourselves and our accomplishment, and we fall short in faith. When we begin to face our confidence on ourselves rather than the new and living way that is available through Christ. We begin to distract. But when faith is placed on God and God himself, when our faith is on him, it becomes the center around which all of our life revolves. And it's really the main thrust of what this author is saying here in the book of Hebrews. He sees the continuality of, of faith. It wasn't just that by faith I stand here righteous, but he saw it as a way of life, as a pattern of life. That to be a believer wasn't just to walk an aisle and make a decision, but to be a believer was somebody who lived it every day because life is faith. Faith is life. It's a recognition that in all that I do, and all that I say, I give glory to the one who created me. I give glory to the one who died for me. I recognize him in all the steps of my paths because faith is a pattern, it's a way, it's a direction of my life because of the one whom I know, who the one whom I place my faith in. And the idea of shrinking back, when he says in verse 39, where the verse 38 and 39 about shrinking back, the idea of shrinking back from faith indicates unbelief. It indicates the trampling of Christ underneath. It indicates unrighteousness. Because the righteous live by faith. So the implication of that is to not live by faith, is to indicate unrighteousness. It indicates that I don't take the path to the new and living way through Christ into the presence of God. I don't recognize the mediator between God and people. I don't recognize those things. I begin to go a different path. I begin to go my own way. And just as back in with the Chal- Chaldeans when they, were, when, they were, when they were talking here in Habakkuk, just as they were puffed up and, and they were not upright because of their own ways, their own process, God says he's looking for those who will live by faith. You don't approach God on your standards. You don't approach God on your own definitions. You don't approach God with your own requirements, your own criteria. You approach God by faith. Anything else that you bring before him isn't gonna be sufficient. It's gonna deceive and it's gonna destroy. And the author of Hebrews continues on in chapter 11, verse one, he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That word there where he says, now faith is the assurance. It literally has the idea of substance. It's the idea to to stand under, to support. It's like a substructure. So in the life of the believer, in the life of the Christian, faith is that substructure which we stand on. In other words, faith to a believer is like a foundation to a house. And around here in Texas, we know about bad foundations, don't we? And what happens? You start seeing the cracks, things start falling apart, you start having all kinds of issues with the house. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is that that foundation, that substructure which we stand on, is faith. And it's not just something mystical, it's a faith in God. He's already drawn that out for the previous 10 chapters, 10 and a half chapters. And he's shown us over and over again that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is able to once and for all settle these issues. And he becomes our foundation. He becomes the object of our faith and we rest in him. And he says also, not only the assurance of things hoped for, but the conviction of things not seen. The idea of that word there, conviction is a good translation It's literally the idea of the inward certainty that God will do exactly what he said he would do. That faith is the basis of assurance. That faith is the basis of our conviction, of our confidence that we believe that God will do what he promised he would do. That it will become experience. When I was a younger guy, I had some friends that were really into rock climbing. So I thought, well, I'll just start trying to figure this out. Now, I'm not built like a rock climber, okay? I'm not one of these wiry guys that can just, you know, like hug the side of a rock. So I wasn't sure, but I was learning to repel and, and jamon, and all those things that you do to, to climb, and I was kind of getting into it, and these friends of mine had gone down to the Sandy Crystal Peaks, and in the Sandy Crystal Peaks, if you know the history, the, the, uh, the Spanish made the Indians hide their gold in the mountains, and and there was all these artifacts and things that they found in those, in those caves and so forth. And the theory is there's still gold in those caves. Well, we're young and, you know, we read all this stuff. So we decided, about six, seven of us or so, decided to go up there and we're going to explore these caves. And a couple of our friends, the guys that I was learning how to, like, repel and do all these things with, they had been in those caves a lot. And uh, so they told us about this one section they hadn't been in. And we had to go down through this little, I mean, like I didn't fit very well. They were all a lot smaller than it was, but I, I, I didn't fit. And I remember having to work down through there. Well, when you come out, you, you're hanging and you're kind of swinging over to get to the ledge. Because when you're coming out, there's nothing really right underneath you. And they told us that before we went down through. So you, you get on this little ledge and then you kind of get down on this little platform. And it's about 15 feet from where you're standing on this platform to the little hole that we came out above us we were young you know when you're young you do a lot of things you wouldn't do when you get older right and so the idea was is that we were going to go from there there was another little spot to go down through and we were going to repel from there and it was about 200 feet 150 feet something like that to the bottom it was like a big gymnasium and from it there was all these caves that went out and we were going to stay there we we're going to put all of our sleeping bags and stay in there overnight and, because there wasn't enough time in one day to get down there and explore and get back out. So we thought, oh, we'll just stay the night. So <clears throat> we were going to repel from there. Well, one of the guys that came down, and most of us were there except for one who was working the ropes above. And he gets down there and he starts looking and he goes, nothing's right. I go, what do you mean? He goes, the, the, the spot where this, this is moved. Well, we're sitting on a, on a rock that they described as kind of this wedged at the top of this 150, 200-foot room. And there's about now six of us walking around on this thing. He's like, "We really need to get off of this." So how do we get out? Well, we got to go back through that hole. And I'm, I'll never forget. I'm standing there, and the guy, one of the guys, he looks at me and he says, "Greg, do you think you can get through that?" And I'm like, "Is there another way out?" He said, "No." And I said, "Well, I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to get through that." And obviously, I did, or I wouldn't be standing here, right? But, but I never forget. I never forget. I had to get up there. And when you're standing on the ledge, this little ledge, you kind of had to do a little jump and to grab. And then when you grab, you just literally had to do a pull-up and pull yourself up and start working your way up, right? Well, I was so timid because I was like, I was, like, I was worried about falling and, and all that. So, so when I jumped, I didn't really do it with conviction, if you know what I mean. I didn't really do it like I was going to grab it and make it. And I remember I reached and I slipped and I fell. And the rope caught me just like it's supposed to. And I remember going, oh, it works. The rope does catch you. You don't believe that. You don't think that. But the rope catches you. So the next time, you know, I got, they got me up and I got up there. And he's like, are you sure you're going to do it? Oh, I got this now. Because I was no longer afraid of the 15 feet below me. I was confident that it would catch me. And I remember jumping up and grabbing him, pulling, on, pulling myself all out of there. And then one of the th- realities is from then on, I never doubted the rope. I would sit back when they, you know, they repel. I never was worried about it catching me because now I trusted the rope. And it's the same picture. It's the same picture about our faith. When we believe in God and we trust that what God means is good, when we trust that what God said he will do, when we begin to trust and believe and have faith in what God will do, it changes our perspective. It changes the way that we look at the world around us. It changes the way that we see things. Because our faith isn't in something we hope, just hope happens. And really the word hope is a confident expectation. It isn't just that idea, but our faith is in what God is able to do. Up until that moment when I fell and I knew that that rope would hold me, I I didn't trust that rope. I didn't have any faith in it. And I'll tell you, as I've lived my life and I've seen God over and over again answer my faith over and over, it gives me more and more confidence to continue to walk in faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here when he's talking about faith and he's going into this chapter 11. In verse 2 he says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. That word commendation literally means like witness. It's the idea of a witness, it's used several times in this passage, and it's the an idea whereby they received their witness and the commendations of, their, of the old, these folks that have gone before us, by their faith. In other words, it's used in chapter, or verse 4 here of Abel, that Abel brought his sacrifice and he was commended as of it being righteous because of his faith. In other words, the fact that he brought this good sacrifice was an ex- expression of his faith. And then it says in the very same verse that God witnessed or commended his faith as righteous. He commended him as righteousness. It also says that about Enoch. Enoch is my Bible hero. I've said that before. I always think if a man can walk with God for 300 years, he needs to be my hero. Because I'm just trying to do it for a few years compared to that, right? Right? But he walked with God, but it says, but before he was taken up, before he was just taken out of this world, it says that he had this testimony, he he was commended that he was pleasing to God. And then it says in the very next verse, verse 6, it says, for without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, you cannot please God without faith. You cannot come before God without faith. You must believe that he is, it goes on in verse 6, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, the picture is is that if I'm going to be pleasing to God, it's going to take faith. And it's going to take faith in, in who God is, and it's going to take faith that he will do what he said he will do. Anything else comes up short. It doesn't talk about how many times you enter into a building to worship. It doesn't talk about how many times you've read through the Bible. It doesn't talk about how many times you have given to the church. It doesn't talk about how many times you served in the church. It's talking about believing that he is and that he's a rewarder then the diligently seek him. Because you can't approach him without faith. You cannot. In fact, in this chapter, in chapter 11 and following, he talks about, all of these great men of faith, and always in the past, we called it kind of the hall of faith. You know, It's kind of like, kind of like when the author of Hebrews wrote this, he wasn't writing this like this is a museum. Oh, there's, there's Moses and there's Noah. Man, these great men, look at them. They accomplished this. Oh, wow, they, they accomplished much. I can't. That isn't why the author of Hebrews is writing these scenes. He's writing these scenes to tell us that they demonstrated a pattern of faith and we too as well. That you are able to express the same faith as Noah when he was warned of God, and he built the ark. Where of Moses, who, who saw past the riches of Egypt, you too can have that same faith. And that's the intention of the author of Hebrews. In fact, when I was trying to think about this, and I was trying to define a way to I was trying to define faith, and I came up with one that I found from Warren Wearsby, Lauren Wisby said, true Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. There was a couple of things. I almost didn't use this because I know how in our culture we don't like the word obedient. Nobody wants to be obedient to anybody else in our culture. We don't like that. We don't even like following the speed limit. I mean, let alone being obedient to anything. Why? Because we want our own way. We want to determine our own way. We want to make our own choices. We want to go our own path. And God called that back in Habakkuk when the Chaldeans thought that way. He called it puffed up and it's not upright within them. And so, so what he's saying here is he's saying it's a confident obedience to God's word. Now, if we clipped off this last little part, we'd all be okay with that. Confident obedience to God's word. Yeah, we're okay with that. And then you throw in in spite of circumstances and consequences Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to pay the price for their faith. We want to believe, but we want it to be an outcome in which it's glorious. We're not willing to, to go the path of, of, of difficult circumstances. And as I began to think about this, I was trying to put together kind of the idea of how faith would work and kind of this simple operation of faith. And as I was thinking about that, even that definition, you kind of see where God speaks and we hear his word. There's a lot of people that hear. What does it tell us in James? Not To be doers of the word, not just hearers only, right? There's, there's a lot of people that hear God's word and then he says, we believe his word. That's kind of the next step. There are a lot of people that hear God's word but they really don't believe it. They don't really embrace it. They don't really believe that God is meaning good towards them when everything's falling apart. They don't mean that, they don't really believe that God has an intention for them. But some people will go a step further and they say, oh, I believe God is good. I believe God intends these things. But then we never act on it. There's a lot of things that we believe that we've never act on. There's a lot of things that we have faith in that we've never act on. Do you believe that God is able to take a soul from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Do you believe that? I believe that. You know how we act on it? We share that message of good news to everybody we can, right? Those are things that we begin to look at. But it's very practical. It can go into so many different ways. And then we add on here, regardless of what the circumstances or consequences might be, there's consequences sometimes. And sometimes those circumstances are, may seem impossible. Sometimes they seem frightening, the consequences. But see, we obey God's word. We take God what he has said and we obey and believe it and we act on it because we believe that he is good and we believe that he will accomplish that which he said. Some fail to realize that faith, the object of faith is God. Faith is only as good as the object in which faith has been placed on. And we place our faith in God. Faith is our total response to God and his revealed word. In fact, in verse 3, he says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It literally changes our reality of understanding why things are the way they are, it changes our experience, our perspective. We begin to see how God is working. I have a dear friend, he's one of the most brilliant men. Many of you would know him. One of the most brilliant men. He loves, he loves science. He loves studying black holes. and I mean, he just, man, he always is telling me something amazing about our creation. I remember there's, oh, he and I have talked hours upon hours, and we love every minute of it. But he'll tell me stuff about science, and he'll say this, and then he'll go, and I know the Bible says this, and it doesn't seem to match, right? Sometimes it doesn't seem to line up, and I love his faith, because what he does is he goes, He goes, I know God is true. I know the Bible is true. I see these things. And he doesn't just throw the Bible away and follow the things that he sees. Because by faith, he understands who God is. And he says, I know these things are true. I just haven't figured it out how they fit yet. So many times we throw things away thinking somehow we have greater knowledge than the Creator Instead of understanding and believing in who he is and understanding those things somehow fit, we just haven't figured it out yet. And I love his faith. That's what, that's what it's talking about there in verse 3. That's what he, what, he, what he means. If you look down in verse 7, this same idea is taking place in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet not seen, Noah heard God speak. He believed what God said. How do I know that? Because it says in that very verse, he says, in reverent fear, and that doesn't mean like, oh, I'm afraid if I don't. He means a reverence. It's an awe, a respect, a belief. In reverent fear, he constructed the, an ark for the saving of his household. He heard God. He heard the word. He believed the word, and he acted upon it. Go to the next verse. Abraham, you know the, you know how it goes. Abraham's told to go to a to a foreign land, and he goes not knowing where he's going to go. But he heard God, he believed God, and he went. If Noah wanted, to, I mean, if Abraham wanted to go back, he could have, but he didn't. He acted in faith. Verse 9, it says, by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to, a, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder God See, when we talk about faith, it wasn't that he was hoping for a better waterfall. It wasn't hoping for a better pasture. He wasn't just hoping for a better water supply. He wasn't just hoping for those. He was looking past those, and he was looking for the city that God built, that God designed. He was looking for God, what God had intended for him. That's faith. In fact, if you go down, verse 13, it says, All these died in faith, not having received the things promised But having seen them, greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. It's a picture whereby, hey, they're looking afar off. The people in the past who walked by faith weren't looking to us, they were looking past us to what God had promised they could have returned to their ways of life. They could have turned to those things, but they didn't because they were looking for a heavenly country. They were looking for a heavenly city. That's what he goes on, and he, he says, if they, uh, if they, uh, verse 15, but as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. We need heavenly-minded believers today, by the way. We need to understand it's not this culture, it's not this time, but there is a life in which we're living. And then one of the most astounding statements in scripture for me Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because of their faith. Because they accomplished these things? No, because they believed God. And it says, for he has prepared for them a city. It goes on and talks about Abraham and and it talks about Isaac and Jacob and and all these things that God has done. It talks about Moses Moses was willing to to suffer with the people of God, with the children of God, rather than the riches of Egypt. He looked past the city and the riches of of Egypt, and he looked to what Christ provided. By faith, he did not fear the king, but he walked after God. And over and over and over again, the author of Hebrews writes of these. In fact, in verse 32, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me, to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put a foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by the resurrection. Now at this point, all of these illustrations in this summary were people who accomplished great things. But then he moves on and he talks about another group. Remember our faith, regardless of circumstances or consequences. He says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flagging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed and two. None of us like that. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Man, it would be really easy to lose your faith over that, wouldn't it? But they looked past those things. They looked to God. In fact, it goes on in verse 38. He says, of whom this world was not worthy. You should underline that. Of whom this world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Look at verse 39. And all of these, through, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, they believed. They didn't receive what was promised yet, but they believed since God had provided something better. Now look what he does right here. He provided something better for us. Now he's including them. They look past these things because God is providing something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And the picture is, is that, is that God is holding them and they're looking past and we're still ahead. I'm not to shrink back, but by faith to believe that what God has promised. I believe that Jesus is gonna come again. You know, when Noah began to build on that boat, he heard God and he began to build on that ark, right? People laughed until the floods came, right? Or when Moses goes in, he's not afraid of the king and he says, let the Hebrew people go. I'm sure they were laughing in the court until the plague started coming. And there's some that's going to laugh at your faith. There's some that are going to disregard it. They're not going to see it as valuable. Because you're looking to God. And you see him as the object of your faith. And you know that he will do what he said he would do. And you believe. And there will be a day when Jesus will come. And the laughter will be no more. We are a people who don't shrink back. We are a people of faith. We're not going back to those ways. But we're a people who rest in the person of God. And some people don't see the value of that. But I'm telling you, if you're God's people, that is how you will be commended, is by your faith. By your faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been struggling with your faith. I encourage you to strengthen your faith, to place it back in Christ, place it back in God, and strengthen that which has gotten weak in Jesus. Let's pray in Jesus. Father, we just come before you and I just lift up to you these things. I pray, God, your spirit would just just move among us. I pray, Father, there's some here this morning that need to be encouraged in their faith, I know. There's some things that some have faced great consequences and circumstances, Father, they need faith. I pray that their eyes would be focused on you, that they would set their eyes upon Jesus. It's amazing how, Father, when we see you, just all of the things in this world just take on a different perspective. When we understand that from everlasting to everlasting, you don't change. You're the same today and yesterday and forevermore. You're the same all-powerful God. You're the same one who has demonstrated mercy and grace. You're the same one, Father, who has reached out to us that we might, Father, by faith, receive your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Father, may your spirit just move among us and do as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.